All right, good morning. Whoever said good morning back to me, thank you for that. That one person, that was great. How are you guys? Thank you to that one person who said great. That's how it always works. Uh, it is really great to see you. Um, it has nothing to do with what I'm talking about today, but I want to inform you that yesterday I got on a plane, and the fact that I made it home alive again, I hate flying in the giant flying tube. Um, every time I get in it, I'm like, all right, I guess the Lord's calling me home, because I am flying in the flying tube of death. But we landed, so in my mind, that means there was something that the Spirit wanted to do in someone's life today. But next time I get on a plane, who knows, right? Um, so super, it does kind of have, have a morbid feel to it, huh? Jake's not here today, so we don't know where this thing's going to go, right? Dad's not here, so you get like the weird cousin. Uh, so really great to see you. Welcome to a new series as well, a series called Outsiders. Um, I'm not exactly sure how many weeks it's going to be, probably five-ish, um, but it's going to be um, running us up until, basically up until September. Um, really good series. It, it's turning out to look like a really good series. If you've got your Bible with you, um, or even like your, your phone app or something like that, I would say turn to Luke 19, uh, because the verses aren't going to be on the screens today. We had some uh, slide things happen. So um, if you want to follow along, you're going to have to go super old school and awesome with an actual Bible. So with that, let's read the story that we're going to talk about today. Um, it's from Luke 19. Uh, we're going to start in verse 1 and talk about Zacchaeus. He, so when it says he, he's talking about Jesus. Uh, he entered Jericho. Jesus went, uh, entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. It's a very polite way of saying he was a wee little man. So, so he ran on ahead and he climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him for he was about to pass that way. A lot of you are playing the song in your head right now. Uh, I am thankful that I've forgotten the words to that song, but they're kind of, they're almost there. And verse five, and when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. When they saw it, the crowd, they all grumbled. He's gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold, times four. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he, Zacchaeus, is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost." So that's the, the passage that we're going to walk through today, uh, verse by verse. We're just going to start with verse 1 uh, and, and plow through it. But before we do that, uh, let me ask a question. What is, uh, what is the mission of Arbor Church? What is our mission? Does anyone know? Make disciples together. Make disciples together. Three words. Make disciples together. That is our mission. So we launched 18 months ago, and that is the commission that we have been given. That's the, that's the anthem that we follow, make disciples together. Why is that our mission? This is, 
commissioned by Jesus. Sometimes the answer is as easy as Jesus said to. Um, and that's okay. We don't have to be wrong. It's not all complicated, right? Why, why is that our mission? Jesus said to. He said, go and make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, so that is the mission of, uh, of Arbor Church. That is our, like our anthem. That's our battle cry. We make disciples and we do it together. So basically when this church launched 18 months ago, whether you were there for the very beginning or whether you've jumped on board, you know, maybe it was today's your first day or it was a month ago or whatever it might be. Uh, but uh, when Arbor launched 18 months ago, it's like a group of people decided, hey, we're going to follow Jesus together. We're going to make disciples. And it's kind of like, if you want to see it, you know, an illustration of it, it's kind of like we all gathered together and we said, we're going to go on this trek together. We're going to go on this journey, whatever you want to call it, from point A, and we're going to go to point B on the other side of the state, practically. We're going to follow Jesus there, and as we go, we're going to make disciples, and we're going to do it together. So I don't know if you've ever done any sort of like land navigation, like actually in the woods, mountaineering type stuff, where you're actually trying to like go from point A to point B, and you have to use a compass and stuff. But the way it works is you find yourself on the, on the map, you figure out where you're at, you figure out where you need to go, and then you use a, comp, uh, a protractor or something, you figure out the, the um, azimuth that you need to be on, the distance and the direction, and then what happens is, okay, so I need to go, you know, 3,000 kilometers at an azimuth of 14 degrees. So then you, you take your compass, and you, you know, it stays north, so you find 14 degrees, and what you do is you literally hold it up to your eye and you look at 14 degrees. It's got a little thing that sticks up and you find something off in the distance that's at 14 degrees. Maybe it's a tree. Maybe it's just some landmark. And you know, as long as I walk to that tree, I can do whatever. But if I end up at that tree, I know I've gone 14 degrees, right? And then you start walking. And the way it works uh, when you're doing that sort of thing with a group is you're all, you're, so you've got your eye on that tree, but then you're always making sure, okay, the group's together. This is how it works, at least in the army, when we do our stupid land nav training that I can't stand. And so you're always looking back to make sure that, okay, the group is still here, uh, and then you get to that tree, and then you do it again. You shoot another uh, azimuth, okay, 14 degrees, I need to go to that hilltop or that cliff or whatever it is, and then you keep going again. You're always, you're, they call it a head on a swivel. You're always looking back, making sure the group is together, and you're always making sure, doing little compass checks to make sure you're actually going on the right azimuth. Basically what Sundays are, what the church does when it gathers on Sunday, is it's a time where you have gotten to the tree and you're stopping briefly to do an azimuth check. And you're stopping to make sure everyone's together. You're making sure everyone has water. You're, you're stopping to encourage one another. You're stopping to make sure everyone's good. You're stopping to tell the people who are struggling, hey, you can do this. You can keep going on, you know, at, at this this distance, this direction. Um, it's our time to pause and to make sure we're heading the right direction. Uh, and for sure, it's for us to stop and to worship and to, to remember why we're on the journey uh, in the first place. That's exactly what we're doing um, on Sundays is we're making sure that we're heading the right distance and direction. So to do that in this series, what we're basically doing is asking the question, if making disciples together is our mission, are we? That's the question that we're, that we're posing in this series. Are we, as a church, making disciples? As a group and individually. It's not just, hey, is 
the leadership of Arbor, like, is it, is it working? Is, are they doing it? That's not how it works at all. It's as a group and as individuals, are we actually doing our mission? Are we making disciples? And are we together? Like, it's time to pause. We're 18 months in. It's time to do a big azimuth check and make sure we're, we're going the, uh, the right distance, the right direction. Because um, if you keep the illustration going, it's not that we're just going from point A to point. We're not just going from Woodenville, Washington to Wenatchee, and we got to get through the mountains. We got to make sure we're going the right way or we're never going to get there. And as long as we get there together, it's a win. That's not really how it works. It's more like, yeah, we're on this journey. We're doing it together. And as we go, we're surrounded by people who don't follow Jesus. And they're in various, you know, uh, they have various opinions of him. So as we're walking along this trail, there are other people who are walking into our midst, but they're not going the same direction as us. They're going that way because if Jesus has said life is on that hilltop and go there together and make disciples as you go, the people around us are looking at that hilltop and they're thinking, no, that's where life is found. Whatever it is, maybe it's money or maybe it's just some sort of satisfaction or stuff like that. So there are people going through our midst and they've got their eyes dead set on different places. They're scratching to find life so, so basically what it is is, yeah, we're trying to get to this place because Jesus said get there, but as we go, our job is to be kind of like intercepting these other people who are going a different direction and saying, no, you're never, you're never going to find life there. It's not going to work. I've tried it. I've been there. I've had the cool truck. I've had the good paycheck, I've, or whatever it is, and then you tell them, here's your real compass. Here's your real compass. And Jesus is the place where life is actually found. And what you do is you say, come with us. That's the whole thing that we're trying to do. We're following Jesus to that place. And everyone around us who's going the opposite direction and all that stuff, we're just saying, come with us. Figure it out with us and we'll follow Jesus together. So, and that's what this whole uh, series is about, is us doing this asthma check and making sure that even if we're doing a really good job going from point A to point B, we're not ignoring all of those people who are around us. Um, we're, and we're actually trying to make disciples and we're actually trying to do it together. Because if, if you're anything like me, whenever I have to prepare a sermon, it's, it's hard for me because I always realize how I'm just doing terribly with some things, um, the, the very topic that we're preaching on. If you're anything like me, what, what's happening is you're doing a real good job staying with the group, the, the insiders, and you're doing a real good, good job going from point A to point B but as you go, you got your head down, and you're really focused on the group. You're really focused internally. You're really focused on your immediate family, maybe. You're really focused on yelling at your kids. You know, stay on the trail. Pick up your toys on the trail. We're trying to get over there. <laughs> Stop falling. Don't get distracted. You're just busy. Like, you're, you're, you're focused on the inside. And as people walk by you on the trail going the opposite way because they're thinking life is that way, it's, you don't have the presence of mind to stop and actually engage them. It's more like, hey, what's up? How's it going? Ooh, he's going the wrong way. All right, uh, well, I got to yell at the kids again, and I got to keep the group moving. We're going to point B, not point C. That's how I tend to live my life, I've found as I've, uh, you know, lo- looked inwardly for this, um, preparing for this. And I suspect that's kind of where we're at. I know some people are nailing it, but my suspicion is that's where Arbor is at. We got our heads down. We're trying to get from point A to point B. And so we want to stop. We want to pause. We want to make sure we're on that right, right azimuth and say, what are we doing with those who are outside of the group? We're doing a real good job with the insiders, but what 
are we doing with those who are on uh, the outside? So this series is going to be it's going to be practical. Like even today, it's not super. It's not rocket science. It's not super deep or anything. It's pretty practical. But I do think it's going to be pretty brutally honest. If you're living like me, I think it's going to challenge you. It's going to kind of kick you in the pants because it's going to ask you the question: Are you really following Jesus if you're really just focused inwardly, or do you need to repent? Do you literally need to say, Jesus, in this area of my life, I am not following you. I'm calling you Lord, but I'm not doing what you actually told me to do, make disciples. That's where I'm at. That's what this series is uh, essentially all, out, or all about. So, um, so as we go um, through this, what I want to show you from Luke and what we're going to show you through the whole series is the way that we love outsiders is by inviting them in. It always comes back to love. It always comes back to the love of God. It always comes back to us loving each other. It seems to always come back to love. And the way we love outsiders as they're doing their thing and going their different directions, the way we love them is by inviting them in as we follow Jesus. We invite them into that um, relationship. So let's go verse by verse uh, through Luke 19. We'll start with verse 1. It says, He, Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. So in this part of the story of Luke, Jesus is going to Jerusalem, and this is the part, like towards the end of the story, where he's heading to Jerusalem, and he knows that he's going there to die. It's the whole purpose of him. Um, It says he had his face set like flint, like he was going, that was his mission. He's getting to Jerusalem because he knows he's going to get on that cross, and he's going to take our sins upon his back, and he's going to die there. Um, So he's, to get there, he's passing through Jericho. He's just healed a blind man, super cool story. and, and uh, that was right before Jericho, and now he's passing through. So Jericho is a town that's about 18 miles from Jerusalem. That's a long He's walked just miles and miles and miles to get there. Um, I read that it's the lowest city on earth, just an interesting thing about it. It's like 400 feet below sea level, um, and it's one of those major intersections uh, to, in order to get to Jerusalem, like chances are you're going through Jericho. It's kind of like Seattle. Seattle doesn't have all that many ways to get to it. So Jericho is almost like the Tequila kind of SeaTac area. A lot of people have to pass through that area to get to Seattle. Jericho is the same sort of idea. It was a major thorough way into uh, Jerusalem. So verse 2, behold, and I love how it just starts that way, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. Instead of just saying, and there was a man named Zacchaeus, but behold, yes, uh, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. So I'm sure if you've been in the church world for all that long, you've heard about tax collectors. Uh, And I know it's not new news, but um, tax collectors were intensely, intensely, intensely hated in this day because the Romans occupied this whole region. Uh, and and the, the Israelite, the uh, God's people, were intensely nationalistic, and they couldn't stand the idea of another country having power over them, um, so they uh, just despised Roman occupation of Judea and that whole region, and so there were these people who would, uh, basically, Rome would impose a tax on a region. They would say, we demand this much money from this region. These these people, these tax collectors would come in, they would pay that fee, that amount, up front. And then it was on them to regain that money from taxing the people. So uh, if you're a tax collector, 
what you would do, if you're a chief tax collector like Zacchaeus is, is you would get all these little tax collectors, these um, minions of yours, to collect taxes, and then they would give you a portion on top. But what would happen across the board is they wouldn't just collect what was fair um, and what was needed in order to equal the amount that Rome needed. They would add a, a big percentage on top. And so when it says that he, Zacchaeus, was a chief tax collector, that means like he was in charge of the people that they hated. They hated these people, and he was the one who led them. So there probably wasn't even a word for how much he hated or they hated Zacchaeus, because he was the chief among them. Like, they just would despise someone like that. And the fact that it says he was a chief tax collector and was rich means that it's even saying, hey, there's a certain amount of money that Rome demanded, and he didn't just collect that, he was rich, which means he had to have added a bunch on top of what he was supposed to collect to his very own people. So he was a a Jewish person who was ripping off his brothers and sisters in order to give money to the people they all hated, uh, the Romans. So there was like layers and layers and layers of hate on uh, tax collectors. They would group them with robbers and brothel keepers, is what I read in one of the um, Bible dictionaries. So, So no one is more outside than Zacchaeus. He is, um, if God says go this way to, to his people, Zacchaeus is like going the opposite way on the other side of the planet in these people's eyes, right? So he is the ultimate outsider. But with that, so, so yeah, Zacchaeus is that person, especially in the eyes of the people in that day. But with that, we have to, um, we have to kind of level set on something and let you in on a little secret. Everybody, everybody is an outsider when it comes to default mode with God. Every single person. So when I grew up in, in my, and I was young, uh, here's how my life worked. I was on the opposite side of the spectrum as Zacchaeus. Um, and I didn't know it at the time, but after I be, uh, got in college and knew what to call things, I was a complete moralist. Like, I was the best kid you ever met um, in elementary school and in junior high and all that stuff. I, had, I, I literally had a teacher walk up to me at recess once. I was probably in fourth grade, and the teacher said, Bobby, <laughs> during recess, and I would just stand and lean against the wall because I, was just, I just wasn't into it. And uh, all the kids were doing their thing, and I was the kid who would never, ever get in trouble. And here's why. It was me and my mom and my little brother, um, and my little brother, they, they diagnosed him with, I think they, they called it... Um, OCD or something like that, obsessive compulsive defiant. If you, they diagnosed him with that. If my mom said, you need to do this, he was obsessively compulsive about not doing that. He could not, I mean, it, it made our family life very, very difficult. So what I did is I made a vow. I, I can, as a kid, I made a vow. I will never, I will never upset my mom. I will never, like, because she had so much, the weight of the world on her shoulders, I will never do anything wrong. I will never, and I found life there. That's what made me okay with the cosmos. I wasn't a believer, but we weren't a Christian family, but that's what made me okay in my soul. So I was a moralist. Zacchaeus is intensely hated because he would rip, every, he would look you in the eye and he would take more money than he was supposed to, and he would do it day in and day out. Two opposite ends of the spectrum, both of us equally outsiders. We're both trying to find life outside of uh, the Lord, outside of a relationship with God, outside of faith in Christ. And without faith, it's impossible uh, to please God. So 
our default mode, everyone, is outsider. Without Jesus, you are light years from God. The Bible says that we're, we're not sick. It's not like we need to be resuscitated. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. So we're as close to God, default mode I'm talking about, we're as close to God as a dead person is to life. We're all outsiders. But what this story shows and this whole series is going to show that does not mean, has not, it's so far different than saying that the love of God is an int- super intense for every single person, even if you're light years away from him. And it also, what we're going to see is, is that no one is so far outside that, that we're beyond redemption or that we're beyond God's reach or anything like that. So even if we're outsiders, uh, it's not the final verdict for, for people. Um, so Zacchaeus, all right, we beat that horse to death, right? He's the ultimate outsider. Uh, the difference with Zacchaeus and everyone being an outsider is he wore, it on his, he wore it on his sleeve. Everyone would look at him and say, yep, he, we, we hate him. He is, he is outside of God's will. Let's keep going. Verse 3. He, Zacchaeus, was seeking to see who Jesus was. So Zacchaeus may have been like as black-hearted as they come. But he was still curious enough to want to know who Jesus was that he tried to see, but he was a wee little man, so he couldn't. So he was curious enough to run, it says, to a, uh, a tree and to, try to, to, and to climb it and to try to see who Jesus was. I think that shows us that we shouldn't write anybody off. If Zacchaeus' heart is black, he's the Grinch. He's the, the heart that's two sizes too small type of guy. Even he was curious about Jesus. So I don't know who you, who you would start to put in your mind right now. As we start to think of a Zacchaeus-type person in your life, you can't write them off. Even if they're avowed, like I will, I'm, a, I'm an A-word, atheist. Uh, even if they're that type of person, you can't write them off. A glimpse of curiosity might be the, the one little tiny seed that's there that in an instant means, okay, they're going to become a follower of Jesus, as we'll see basically happens in this story. So Zacchaeus was seeking to see who Jesus was. It shows us that no one is too far from redemption. No one is too far from God. No one is too far. Uh, and that keeps going. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So verse four, so he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. Jesus was gonna uh, pass that way. So we've got an outsider who's just curious enough to see, to watch Jesus walk by. If you think about the story, it wasn't like, it doesn't sound like he was gonna climb that tree and then try to do something big to try to get Jesus to come over and engage him. He was just curious enough to watch Jesus walk by walk out of his life forever. He, there was just a little glimpse of curiosity. Um, so now that we've got our outsider, we're going to look at Jesus' example. For this whole series, the goal is to say, okay, if Jesus said make disciples, we're going to look at Jesus' example. How did he fulfill the very mission that he's given us? How can we follow Jesus' example in order to make disciples and to do it uh, together? So as we move through, I want to call our attention to six things. Yes, six but uh, we'll, it'll be, yeah, you won't have to memorize all six because they all are kind of basically the same idea. Um, but call our attention to six things. Let's go to verse five. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, to Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for I must stay at your house today. 
So we're going to start real basic, just baseline here, um, in following Jesus' example. Number one, Jesus stopped and he initiated a conversation. He stopped and he initiated a conversation. Again, it doesn't have to be some complicated answer, right? If you're following Jesus' example in this area, sometimes it's just as simple as stopping and initiating a conversation. Compare that to me with my neighbors, uh, for example. I don't know my neighbors, like, hardly at all. Uh, the other day, the, one of the neighbor girls comes over and plays at our house all the time, like every day. We love her. Claire is amazing. She um, plays with all of our kids, even our three-year-old. Um, and one time, the mom, uh, we saw her at Target. Um, and I've even forgotten her name right now. That's how bad at this I am. Um, and we saw her at Target, and uh, Claire wasn't with the mom and, and actually the dad, too. I have no idea his name. Uh, and I walked up to them and I said, hey. And they looked at me like, who in the world are you? Uh, and I was like, oh, they don't know who I am. Uh, abort mission. <laughs> and I was like, I'm out of here. Because <laughs> I didn't remember their name. I wasn't going to be like, hey, whatever your name is, I'm your neighbor. And Claire plays at our house like 12 hours a day. Um, I'm awful at this. Like stopping and initiating a conversation. I'm the most socially awkward person you'll ever meet in your life. Uh, one time the mom came over to our house to get Claire and she like rang our doorbell, bing bong, and I like walked over with the baby and I was like, oh, it's Claire's mom, whatever her name is. And uh, we talked for a second. She introduced herself and I still don't remember her name again. Uh, and, uh, and then she left with Claire and I was like, Ruth, come here. The neighbor knocked on our door. This is huge. Like it shouldn't be that big of a deal. Uh, so Jesus stopped taking the time to stop and initiate a conversation, you have to remember, he's on his way to Jerusalem. He, it's not like he's got nothing to do. He is, a, he is walking to Jerusalem to take upon himself the sins of the world. Um, and he's trying to get there. And yet you see him as he's walking, and he takes time to say, Zacchaeus, yeah, I got to get to Jerusalem, but we're going to do this. When Jesus does that, even though he has a bigger mission in mind, when he does that, he's not taking a break from his ultimate mission. It's part of what he's up to. It's the same thing for us. A lot of us, uh, we're living life, we're super busy because we have work, we have family, we've got volunteer stuff, we're trying to make ends meet, we're doing all of these things. And so what happens is we start to see this sort of conversation, engaging outsiders, as like an extra add-on to life. As if it's like an extra add-on to the mission of your life, which is try to survive and try to make it from here to there with Jesus without falling off the trail. That's the kind of the way we live our life. But we've actually got it flipped. When you take a break from your, you know, the daily responsibilities that you have, whether it's work or family, whatever it is, it's not you shelving the actual mission of your life so that you can, okay, I'll take some time and spend it with people and try to have a conversation about Jesus. That is the mission. You engaging people and ultimately building these friends, loving people and ultimately trying to make disciples and do it together, that is the mission. The rest of it is there in order to enable, enable you to engage. The, the reason you live in a neighborhood isn't so that you can like, have a safe place for your kids to play and to go to a really great school, as great as those things are, don't get me wrong. The reason you live in a neighborhood is so that you can engage those neighbors and you can make disciples. That's why you're there. You're not first and foremost like a worker at some company. 
You're not first and foremost even just a, a, a parent or anything like that. When you are engaging people or, or making disciples, you're actually fulfilling the real mission of your life. So there was a, a quote from Pastor Jonathan at North Shore. It's always stuck with me. I think I've even said it from here before, but uh, we are disciples of Christ cleverly disguised as whatever you do. So for me, I'm an operations director at a nonprofit. I am a, I am not an, that's not who I am. I'm not an operations director. I am a disciple of Christ cleverly disguised as an operations director at Stronger Families in Kirkland. You are a disciple of Christ cleverly disguised as a stay-at-home mom or as a programmer at Microsoft or as a, in sales or whatever it might be. That's who you are first and foremost. That's it's what, so Jesus taking the time to initiate, to stop, to have that conversation isn't him taking a break from the mission. It's him, it's accomplishing the mission, and it's the same thing for us. So what that means is I'm too busy, as hard as it is to even say these words because I'm terrible with this, um, I'm too busy is never a valid excuse to ignore outsiders as we're walking this journey and as they're passing through our life. Uh, and I'll be the first to say, at the end of this, I'm going to pray, and you're going to see me repenting of this very thing. It's got to change. It's unacceptable how I'm living my life and ignoring people who are not uh, following Jesus with us. Unacceptable. So the second uh, observation from this little verse is that Jesus practiced blunt force hospitality. I mean, he wasn't messing around. He walked up to, in fact, this isn't even hospitality. This is reverse hospitality. He told Zacchaeus that Zacchaeus was going to be hospitable with him. I am coming to your house. From the sick, uh, hurry down from that tree. So he didn't tiptoe around, you know, like tiptoe around things and be like, hey, Zacchaeus, whoo, the weather around here is pretty hot. I bet your house has good AC. Uh, he didn't like try to do this whole thing. He just practiced blunt force hospitality. The other day, or, or probably a week ago, I had a neighbor across the street. I'm thinking of his name. Nope, not there. Uh, <laughs> He, Lance, Lance, got it, Lance, yeah, Lance, so I'm, thank you, uh, I'm getting out of my car, and he calls across the street, Bob, you're back, you're in town, well, I've been back in town for three months, yeah, I'm doing a great job being a neighbor, uh, and he says, uh, great to see you, that's all he said, and I said, yeah, great to see you too, <laughs> and, uh, and then I was like, no, do this, and so I was like, hey, by the way, Ruth and I want to have you guys over for dinner soon. And he's like, no, okay, cool. No big deal, right? Well, guess what I haven't done since then? Uh, I haven't talked to him at all. Uh, I haven't tried to get it on the books. I haven't tried to get it on the calendar or anything like that. That's the opposite of blunt force hospitality of, hey, Bob, good to see you. You're back in town. Yeah, okay. And I'm walking across the street to get in his face and be able to shake his hand and say, hey, do you want to have dinner tomorrow? Let's have dinner tomorrow. Not tomorrow? How about the next day? Not, no, not the next day? Okay, how about the next day? Like, you're going to make it happen. That's, literally, that's following the, the I, I think, that following the example of Jesus. There, because the next thing is, he says, hurry. Hurry down from the tree. Today I'm having, uh, or I'm spending the day at your house. Number three is, he had a sense of urgency. So it's not, hey, let's do something and within the next six months. It's, and that's how we operate. When I even, we try to have dinner with folks sometimes, and it's like, yeah, let's look at the calendars. We have an opening in uh, September. It's, it's the way we live our lives because it's that packed. But for him, he had this sense of urgency with Zacchaeus. Uh, basically, underneath that, he's saying, I'm not going to be in, in Jericho long. If this is going to happen, it's happening today. Uh, again, to my shame, 
I do not live my life with I love. Like, I love my neighbors. I do. I have a genuine something going on, but I keep kicking that can down the road. I cannot stand in front of you. I can't stand in front of Jesus and say, yeah, I'm, I'm following you. I'm doing what you told me to do, kicking this can down the road and focusing inward, focusing on the, the church inside and just, just pushing kind of outsiders out of my life. I just can't do it. I can't stand here and say I'm doing a good job about it. It's got to change. So, so the question is, when was the last time you were bold enough to have a sense of urgency? You got out of bed and you're like, today I'm talking to that super sketchy person at work or the sibling that I've got who com- has completely lost their mind. We're having a conversation today. And maybe it's not the whole thing, like, hey, you're going to need to repent and all that stuff, but all right, we're going to start this conversation. This is happening. There's a sense of urgency. It's going to happen today. I'm going to call them. I'm not going to text them. I'm actually going to call them. Uh, when was the last time that's happened in your life if you're saying you're a disciple of Christ? You've got to answer that question. For me, it's been far, uh, again, far, far too long. So verse 6. So Zacchaeus hurried, came down, and received Jesus joyfully. The story could have taken, you always have to think, how could the story have, it could have gone a completely different way. Zacchaeus, when Jesus said, hey, hurry down, I'm going to stay at your house today, Zacchaeus could have been like, take a hike. Who the heck are you? Yeah, I wanted to see who you were, but I got plans tonight. And the, I don't know if the story would have made it in the Bible, uh, if that happened, but it could have taken an absolute turn, a, a completely different direction, but instead, Zacchaeus hopped down and he received him joyfully. Again, that, that little spark of curiosity, just enough for him to watch Jesus walk by, was enough for the Spirit to be wa- working in his life where he was like, Jesus wants to be me of all people. There's a whole, whole huge crowd. And so he gets down, and as soon as he gets to talk to Jesus, he's like, yeah, yeah I want to do this. Again, you can't write anybody off. You never know what's going on underneath the surface. Uh, so verse 7, when they saw it, the crowd, they all grumbled. He's gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. So Jesus is walking through Jericho. There's a lot of people. It's kind of, kind of how the story is set up. But uh, an observation we can make, this is number four. Jesus chose the epitome of lost. He chose the epitome of the, the lostest, if that was a word. Um, there's kind of lost, and then there's like hopelessly lost. And Je- it's almost like Jesus looked around the crowd, and he's like, how can I teach a lesson right now to everyone and have it in the Bible to teach for centuries to come? I will need to find the person who is like the absolute, uh, you know, totally far from God. Ah, the dude in the tree, probably him. Oh yeah, that's Zacchaeus, the chief tax collector. That's the one I'm going to go after. Uh, what that does is it, it kind of teaches us a lesson like, in your life, you've got all these people going different directions as you're following Jesus, right? And we tend to say, ah, oh, this person, they're, they're like religiously inclined. They're, they seem religiously inclined. I'm going to talk to them because it seems like that's where, you know, the, my biggest return on investment might be. And so you're, you're, you're more prone to talk to them. Whereas, again, if you're following the, the example of Jesus, yeah, great, talk to them. But just don't write anybody off. He literally went to the, the epitome of loss and he had a conversation with him. And he, whoever that is in your life, Jesus had a, 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 the, enough love for that person to invite uh, that person to, to join and have a, a relationship with them. So let's keep going. Verse 8. Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. 
So now's where we get, we get to the part of the story where we don't get to emulate and, and, and be, like follow the example of Jesus necessarily anymore. But instead, this is the part of the story where we get to watch Jesus work in someone's life. Because it ain't about our effort. We are, we are used by God, and that's great. But at the end of the day, it's not about our effort. It's about what Jesus, the Holy Spirit, does in someone's life. So that's this part of the story. Um, and the way the story is told, uh, even though, so, so he basically stands there and says, half of my goods I give to the poor. If I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. We have no idea the conversation that led to that. It could have been him just hopping down from the tree and seeing that Jesus is inviting him and him just being so overcome by that small gesture that he repented and he you know, made things right in the moment. That could have happened. But at the same time, there could have been a whole conversation that we're just not told uh, about. This could have happened, for all we know, later at, at Zacchaeus' house. The way the Bible is written is it's like there are 12 cameras. It's like a video shoot, right? And it's like there are 12 cameras. If there are 12 disciples, uh, 12 cameras on the life of Jesus. But at the end of the day, and, and it, 12 cameras with three years of footage, let's say, but at the end of the day, what we walk away with, the final cut in the, in the Bible is essentially th- four cameras, in a way, pared down to like a 45-minute film. And there's a lot edited out. Like they take the pieces that they want to, um, that the Holy Spirit basically has led the authors to show the parts of Jesus' life that he, that he wants to show, but the rest of it's kind of left out. And so we don't n- exactly know the conversation that Jesus had with him all we know is that he, in that moment, repented. It, I, and I would wager that Zacchaeus, Zach, let's call him Zach, uh, he's lived his entire life by placing uh, li- the sense of life and longing and everything, uh, uh, the sense of uh, where he finds life, in money. So he has scratched and he has figured it out a way to become the chief tax collector and he has found life in money, but I would wager that he has lived you know, this, this whole life with this underlying just, just misery, dissatisfaction with what he's gained by be, being rich and by turning his back on his people, by turning his back um, on God, I bet that he feels uh, completely rejected, he feels outside, and he's lived his life bowing to this fake God called money. So when Jesus, who he knows represents God, uh, walks up to him and says, hey, I need to stay at your house today, in a way, I think he, he sees Jesus and he says, this person who represents God is, have, is engaging me and is wanting some sort of relationship and it's, it's almost as if God himself is engaging me right now and I think he was eager to throw off his fake God. It sounds like he was just waiting for someone to invite him in and so he could throw off this fake God called money and he says, Jesus, behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give away. Uh, if, I've, if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I give it back fourfold. He couldn't get that fake God off of him, off of his shoulders and out of his life fast enough. And that's what repentance is. It's when you, when you decide, Jesus has me going this way. He says, that's where life is found and it's in him, but I've been going this way. And repentance is you saying, I'm, I'm dropping all the bags and all the stuff that I had to get me there because now I'm going that way, and it's you getting on the right path. It's you following Jesus um, to the place where he's, he's leading you, and that's exactly what we see Zacchaeus do. So somehow, here's observation number five, Jesus led him to repentance. We, it doesn't even tell us exactly how. It might have just been the weight of his presence and the way he invited him uh, in, but he led him to repentance. 
What I would say on this one, briefly, is that it, let's say you're going to engage uh, coworkers or friends or family members, that crazy uncle or the sibling or whoever it might be, you, you've got to have that conversation someday if you're going to make disciples. Pre, pre, let's call them pre-disciples, unbelievers, whatever, people on the outside, they're never going to just come pound on your door and say, I have seen something different in your life. Uh, or they might, but it's not the way it usually works. They're not going to pound on your door and say, I've seen something different in your life. Tell me, what is the way to everlasting life? And then you're like, whoa, cool. This is really really easy. Well, you follow Jesus. It's just not going to happen that way. You being a really nice person, you being a really kind, generous person, all that stuff, is not going to equal people becoming disciples. So like, I'm horrified. I got a nine-year-old, a six-year-old, a three-year-old, and a a five-month-old. And I'm terrified because it seems like with the nine and the six-year-old, pretty soon I have to have the talk with them, like that conversation. And I'm basically terrified to have it with them because I don't have a clue what I'm doing. I need to read a book or something. (laughs) Equally so, when you are following Jesus and making disciples, eventually you've got to have the talk with a person and you actually have to invite them to follow Jesus. And it can be, it doesn't have to be weird, it doesn't have to be like over the top, it could, you, it could be you just posing a question. Have you ever considered that what Jesus said is true? Have you ever considered that? Oh, what, what, what did Jesus say? Well, let's talk about it. He said he's the way to, to he, it says that God loved the world so much that he sent his son uh, and that whoever believes. Have you ever considered that he actually did rise from the dead? Have you ever considered that he actually died on the cross because of he wanted to take the weight of sin from you and, and own it himself and things like that. It could, you just, it could be just you posing questions, but if you're going to make disciples, you've got to actually have the talk with people because your good life is never going to lead. It's not the gospel. Your, your, your good life is just not. You've got to have that conversation. Am I hitting home runs in that department? Absolutely not. With my kids, I am but not with outsiders, not with people who are, who we would call far from God. All right, let's keep going. Verse nine, and Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house, since he also, Zacchaeus also, is a son of uh, Abraham. So son of Abraham, that's kind of an insider term, that's insider language. He's been separated from God's people because of how he's been the chief tax collector. They all hate him. Uh, but so when it's saying he too is a son of Abraham, hey, he too is part of God's people. He's part of the line of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, that whole thing. Basically, the outsider is now reconciled, is what Jesus is recognizing and, and proclaiming. Today's salvation has come to this house. You have repented, uh, Zacchaeus. This is, so the last verse, verse 10. So we can talk all day about the example Jesus set, but here's the crazy thing. I would actually say that's not the main point of this verse. So when you're reading the Bible, um, a lot of times it leads you really great examples to follow and stuff, but usually in a, uh, a set, a portion of the Bible, usually there's something, there's a key point that, that's, trying to get, uh, that's trying to get across. And although Jesus has set an example that we do need to follow, I would say verse 10 is the actual main point of this whole thing. And it says, he kind of like puts a bow on the whole thing that just happened, and he says, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That's what he's trying to teach when he walks into Jericho. That's, exa- that's what's happening as he walks into Jericho and he's looking around. He's like, 
I can't talk to all these people. I'm not going to everyone's house. That would take like three more years. I'm gonna find one person and I'm gonna make an example of one that I would love to make an example of, of everyone, right? So he finds the epitome of lost and then he, at the end he explains why. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. He didn't come to seek and to save the almost there. He didn't come to seek and to save the religiously inclined. Like it's as if it's some sort of like thing in our DNA that, oh, you're more religiously inclined than other people and Jesus is like for that group of people. He didn't come to seek and save those who are moralists and who are basically, shoot, when I became a Christian at 16 years old, I was better than the Christians in the youth group that I was in. I'll just be straight up with you. Like I looked around to my left and right and I was like, you guys are doing what? I haven't even been following Jesus and I don't do that stuff because I put all of my life into like, I'm okay with God or who, the cosmos because I don't do bad things. I had found all my life there. Turns out I was completely lost. I was trying to find life in that place. It's not like Jesus is saying, hey, I'm coming for people who are good like Bobby was back in when he was 16. Um, but instead, he came to seek and to save the lost, the wicked, the spiritually bankrupt, the the people who have been duped, like they've been tricked. That's what's happened in life. We've been tricked to find life in places that it's not found. He came to seek and to save the, the hopeless and the fooled and the, the distracted. That's exactly what Jesus uh, came to do. So number six, this is the sixth observation. Jesus loved Zacchaeus. In, in this story, I would say, Jesus loved Zacchaeus by inviting him in. And that's the example. At the end of the day, that's the example we follow. This place should be full. In, in a year or in six months, this place should be full of sketchy people. And I say that in all seriousness. Like that crazy sibling of yours that has lost their mind. They should be sitting here and they should be hearing about Jesus because you're inviting them into your life uh, and, and, there's, and maybe there's just that little bit of curiosity. Or that person who is the A word, the atheist, they should be in this place. The person who just seems completely outside. Other churches should be like the crowd, grumbling. Uh, Arbor Church, yeah, it's full of super sketchy people who like keep coming back to hear about Jesus. That would be amazing. Because when I look out over this crowd, I like who's in here. Don't get me wrong. Like, this is an amazing group of people. Like, the nicest people on the planet. And some of you are kind of sketchy. Don't get me wrong. Uh, but it would be amazing. Like, I've got, I've got siblings in mind. I've got friends in mind. I've got co- uh, not so much coworkers. I work at a Christian organization. But people in my life, I'm like, yeah, I need to engage my neighbor after I learn their name and all that stuff. It just needs to happen. So let me, let me wrap up by saying this. And the band can kind of head up. Uh, it's as if, okay, back to the first illustration. We're on this journey together. Arbor Church is. Yep, we're stopping. We're doing an azimuth check. And we're, we're asking you to ask the question, am I fulfilling the mission? Are we as a group fulfilling the mission? Are we making disciples? And are we together? Are we doing it uh, together? It's almost as if when we go from point A to point B, following Jesus together, where we've been commissioned to be like a search and rescue squad or different search and rescue squads. But what's happened, or at least what the tendency is, is a lot of people in that search and rescue sort of mentality, they start to realize that they would really rather hang out with each other 
than with the people that are lost, like they're having to go out and find. Because when you go out and find a lost person who's lost, they're like afraid, and they're like, they're dirty because they've been lost in the woods for a while, and they're not all cleaned up, and they don't have all the cool gear that we do because we're search and rescue people. Um, So what happens is you get a lot more comfortable just hanging out with the search and rescue folks, and you kind of don't want to hang out with the people who are actually um, lost out there, and you forget that the whole point of being a search and rescue squad, of being commissioned to do something, isn't for the sake of what's here. It's for the sake of those who are out there and who are lost and who are you know, spiritually bankrupt and all these things. They need someone to go find them, and they need someone to invite them in. And if they're walking the wrong way, they need someone to say, no, come with us. Life is found over here. That's, that's what we're talking about in this entire series is how do we do this? How do we love people enough to invite them in? So with that, um, I'm going to pray. Uh, I'm going to invite you to respond. Uh, there are different ways you could do it. If you've got someone in mind, maybe they're the epitome of lost or whatever it is, um, and you want to pray for them, uh, one way to do that, we do it every once in a while, is... Uh, Maybe you would come up here and you would light a candle for that person. And it just represents your prayer going up to God um, on behalf of someone in your life who's lost um, or outside. Um, So that's one way that you could respond. We're all going to respond in worship, I hope, um, by standing and singing together. Another way to uh, respond is by giving. There are boxes in the back that you can uh, worship by giving through. And then I'm going to go to the back if anyone wants to pray. Um, I'm happy to do it. Maybe it's for a neighbor or coworker, whoever it might be. We'll just pray together. But all of us, I hope, could uh, at least stand. We'll stand together and then we'll, we'll worship together.